Father in heaven, thank you so much for the privilege we have of coming apart and studying, really, the crowning act of your creation on this planet, the human organism. And yet we're in a world of sin and things go wrong, and yet you want your children to be ambassadors of your good news, not only the gospel as far as the saving power of Jesus, but also how you want to save us from ourselves and our poor lifestyles and the environment that we find ourselves in. Please help us to that end. Give us things that we can take away that will not only change our lives, but change the lives of those we touch. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we truly are in the midst of what we'd call a pandemic. It is a worldwide epidemic when it comes to high blood pressure. Sometimes we think these chronic diseases are just happening in the United States. But earlier this year, I was invited to speak at a uh, division-wide conference in Europe. The uh, Inter-European Division was hosting a health conference, and I said, i got to look at data throughout the world. Is it just a U.S. problem? Are we dealing with high blood pressure worse than other nations? Well, I looked at data from the World Health Organization, and it is amazing. Using guidelines, some people would say a little bit older guidelines, We'll talk some about changes in guidelines as we go through the CME event this afternoon. But historic guidelines for high blood pressure up until fairly recently, greater than or equal to 140 for the systolic number, greater than or equal to 90 for the diastolic number, or on blood pressure-lowering medication. The World Health Organization looked at this across nations throughout the world. What did they find? This is the prevalence, the percentage of the population with high blood pressure. And you can see, it doesn't matter where you go, whether it's a developing nation or a developed nation, about 30 to 50% of the population have high blood pressure. You say, well, that's just the ABCs, Dr. DeRose. What about the other countries? It's the same wherever you go. It includes China and Denmark. It's Germany. It's Chile. Ghana, Iran, Israel, 30 to 50% across the board as you look at the rates of high blood pressure Mongolia, that's right, Mongolia, Poland, doesn't matter, 30 to 50% with high blood pressure. So we want to look today at some key messages, first about epidemiology. And the first key message is this is a pandemic, an estimated 1.4 billion people worldwide with high blood pressure, and the number continues to climb. So let's look at seven key messages that especially relate to the epidemiology, but also give us some special insights that can help us when we reach out to our patients and to our communities. Seven key messages. The first one we've already had. We're in the midst of a pandemic. But here's the second one. The second one, it's not just someone else's problem. It's not just someone else's problem. If you don't have high blood pressure today, it's likely waiting for you down the road. Did you catch that? It's likely waiting for you and for me. That's what the data shows. If we look at what happens as a population ages, the rates of hypertension increase dramatically. This is even with older data, older cutoffs for high blood pressure. We'll show you what they look like with newer guidelines. But what I want you to notice is once we get into our 60s, our age is roughly the percentage likelihood that we have hypertension. I know we just ate, so let's make this a little bit interactive. Let's say someone is 65 years old in America. Let's say 68. They're 68 years old. What is the likelihood that they have high blood pressure? That's right, 68%. How about if they're 75, what is the likelihood? 75%. Now, roughly, that's a rule of thumb. That is remarkable. This is what happens worldwide. If you look at the World Health Organization data, it's the same. Worldwide, as we get older, our likelihood of having hypertension dramatically increases. And if you look at some very good data that we have from here in the United States, the data suggests that only about one in 10 of us, these are the newer guidelines, you can see it just shifts things up a little bit higher, but only about one in 10 of us, if we're like the average American, will evade the grasp of hypertension. About 90% of individuals, look at this statistic here, 55 to 65 years of age, they have no hypertension. 90% chance 
that before they die, they will have a diagnosis of high blood pressure. I think that's just, just astounding. So if you're talking about high blood pressure, you're basically talking about a problem that relates to every single person, whether we realize it or not. We either have high blood pressure or it's likely waiting for us. Now you say that's being quite pessimistic. Well, not really, because we want to try to look at some of the reasons why that's the case and some of the things we can do or some of the things we can help our patients do so that they don't develop high blood pressure. Well, I don't want to spend a lot of time with the obvious. High blood pressure is extremely dangerous, even though it is underappreciated as such by most people who have high blood pressure. Here's how the World Health Organization put it, really in a very um, impressive monograph, if you're interested in worldwide risk of non-communicable diseases, chronic diseases, very, uh, very nice monograph here published in 2011 by the World Health Organization. Here's what they said. Common preventable risk factors underlie most non-communicable diseases. These risk factors are a leading cause of the death and disability burden in nearly every country. Says Dr. DeRose, you can't even read right. It says nearly all countries. Same message. Regardless of economic development. Look at this. What is the leading risk factor globally for mortality? Elevated blood pressure. So high blood pressure is not just a risk factor that we uh, get concerned about. It is really a worldwide problem that is cutting millions of lives short. You know many of the complications that go along with high blood pressure. We won't take a lot of time with this, but I will highlight a couple. More and more data really underscoring just how compelling the link is between even relatively mild levels of blood pressure elevation and dementia. Men often don't realize that it's not just um, agents that are sometimes used to treat prostate problems that actually lower blood pressure. It's true with one class of drugs, you know, the alpha agonists. But prostate problems are increased if you have high blood pressure. But, of course, the leading concerns, stroke, heart attack, kidney failure, blindness. If you have diabetes, you're at dramatically increased risk of just about everything on this list. Add high blood pressure to the equation, and it increases your risk even more. So here's the first take-home point from these first three epidemiology points, and that is if we're interested in ministering to our patients, if we're interested in ministering to our communities, and if we're interested in preserving our own abilities to minister effectively, we need to be concerned about high blood pressure. Do you think that's a, a fair conclusion to draw just from what we've looked at? Okay, some of you are alert enough to nod your heads. Others of you aren't sure. You're like me, being more noncommittal, and I appreciate that. I don't want, I, I, I'm not one of those uh, preachers who like to get people saying amen, get them into a, you know, work them up into a fervor so that they will assent just to about anything that the speaker says. So you're doing very well to have your critical regard uh, and your critical faculties honed even after a lunch on a warm day. Well, here's my story and how I got involved being especially interested in the public health approach to high blood pressure. I'm from Northern California, outside of Sacramento. Our health director there, Dr. Gordon Bodding, about six years ago, six, seven years ago, came up to me and he said in so many words, our Adventist churches are not doing anything to help people with high blood pressure. We don't have a specific program to deal with high blood pressure. Why he thought this was a concern is as he went throughout the conference, he saw that we would often do these health screening events. And he noticed there was one common denominator at every health screening event that he attended, and what was it? A blood pressure check. So we're identifying all these people with high blood pressure, and then he said, but our churches don't have any program to invite them to. So he invited me to um, actually film a series of uh, presentations. So we filmed three one-hour presentations. We called it Reversing Hypertension Naturally. We partnered with a number of ministries like Weimar and Amazing Facts and the production. And uh, that's been available, like I said, for about six years. We said, though, something more is needed, especially churches that are interested in this and for health professionals. And a couple of years ago, uh, uh, Greg Steinke, Dr. Greg Steinke, Trudy Lee, and myself came out with this book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. Now, if some of you are here 
because you have a special regard for Dr. Steinke, as I do. You saw in the program that he was going to be here with me. Unfortunately, he's actually not able to be here, so I'm pressing forward without him. He uh, recently re relocated from the Northwest to the Collegedale, Tennessee area, and he's uh, keeping busy on the home front. We said we could limp along without him, and of course that gives me an out. If you don't like something that happens in the seminar, I'll just say, well, that's because Dr. Steinke wasn't here, okay? More recently, there's been a change in the blood pressure guidelines. We're going to get to that in just a minute, but I'm going to tell you one other obvious thing about epidemiology. I say obvious because I'm speaking to health professionals. It seems that many lay people don't seem to realize that it really does make a big difference to get their blood pressure numbers down. After all, they feel the same, whether their blood pressure is 170 over 100 or whether it's 130 over 80. But it makes a huge difference. Just one example to illustrate the obvious, and that is regardless of our age, getting our blood pressure down will dramatically increase our risk of a stroke. Decrease. Yes, thank you for correcting me. That's why I like audience participation. Yes, we'll dramatically decrease our risk of a stroke. Okay, now key message number five. Now this is something that a lot, we, we could spend all day talking about this. I don't think it would be particularly useful, but I want to give you some insights into why I think there is controversy in the medical world about what guidelines should be for high blood pressure. So we'll try to give you really a quick overview, but here's the key message that I want to give you. I actually think the confusion about blood pressure guidelines is an opportunity for us to educate people about high blood pressure. In fact, I believe it's priming lay people and professionals for messages about non-drug therapy for high blood pressure. So follow along with me over the next few minutes. If you can understand this rationale and it makes sense to you, this is something that you can use in your educational efforts. So let's step back to uh, the Joint National Committee report back in 20, that was effective through 2013. We call it JNC7. So they would have these uh, panels that would convene and put out these guidelines. We had JNC1, 2, 3, 4, all the way up through JNC7. 2013, JNC8 came out. But JNC7, guidelines that pretty much were accepted worldwide for a decade, and you can see the guidelines that they were using. So basically, they wouldn't call someone hypertensive until their blood pressure reached 140 systolic or 90 diastolic. So those were the cutoffs that were being used. You can see they had a category that they called prehypertension. They said normal blood pressures were here, less than 120 systolic, less than 80 diastolic. Well, things have been gradually changing. This is uh, even the World Health Organization. This year, I didn't look recently, but they were still using the 140 over 90 cutoff. But many expert groups have been pushing these criteria downward. It's true in Europe. It's true in the U.S. You can see European guidelines pushing things lower, especially for certain populations. This was a few years ago. Then the big change came out about a year ago now, in 2017, when... Two organizations, American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association, along with a number of other organizations, came out with a new set of blood pressure guidelines. And uh, they basically were going to label everyone as elevated if they were over this normal range. Okay? Hypertension, frank hypertension, begins at 130 over 80. And there's been a lot of dialogue, a lot of discussion about whether it's good. Some expert groups, some specialty groups are saying, no, we're going to keep it at 140 over 90. Others say, no, we need to lower it. So why is there controversy? And I, I actually, before coming in today, I was looking at some different articles, and, and this debate is still playing out today and different groups taking sides. Here's why. This is why I believe there's controversy. To some extent, any elevation beyond your physiologically lowest attainable blood pressure is harmful, okay? Once you reach a certain blood pressure level, though, lowering your blood pressure with medications can introduce more problems than it solves. Let's look at some data that underscores this. This is actually the World Health Organization again. And remember, they're sticking with a guideline of 140 over 90 as a cutoff, but they will... They will put right in the same publication. 
that you begin to increase risk as your blood pressure goes up beyond 115 over 75. We've had data that really has um, indicated this for decades, literally, really suggesting that if we want to have the lowest risk, we probably want a systolic blood pressure of 110 or lower, diastolic 75 or lower. One of the data sets that uh, you may have heard of is the Multiple Risk Factor Intervention Trial, or Mr. Fit. This brings us back a number of decades. And you can see here, I mean, very good data. The asterisks actually are showing you differences that are not statistically significant. And so the point here, just to make it practical, if you can't read the fine print, by the way, this is an advertisement for our doctors of optometry that are here. If you can't see that, you know, you're supposed to make friends with one of them and schedule an appointment. But look here. This is looking at, this is decile, so it's divided the population into 10% pieces, if you will. And you can see those with systolic blood pressures less than 112, that's the darker red bar. You can see by the time you get up to a blood pressure of 118, you're increasing your risk of heart disease death by 30%, and that is statistically significant. So going from 110 to 118, you're dramatically increasing your risk of heart disease death. I mean, I think that's quite stunning when you think about where we're looking. So you start looking at stuff like this, and you say, well, we want to get our blood pressure as low as possible. Now, some of you realize we walk down this same path with diabetes, right? And if you look at the population, the lower your hemoglobin A1C, that average marker of blood sugar, the less risk you have of things that go along with diabetes. The better off you are. But the problem is we don't give people insulin and oral medications or other injectable medications to get their hemoglobin A1C down to 5. Why don't we do that? Because it increases complications. It increases deaths. So what is good in a natural state is not necessarily good when you're medicating people. So adding medication changes the equation. When JNC8 came out, they did not take the position that the expert panel took last year. And one of the reasons why is for data like this. This is actually one of the studies that's quoted in JNC8. And what you're looking at here are two of the very best tolerated classes of medications when it comes to high blood pressure, the angiotensin receptor blockers and the ACE inhibitors. One drug from each of those classes. And what you look at here is, yes, if your blood pressure is in the 160s, getting it down will decrease your risk. This is, about a, uh, this is a longitudinal study following people over a span of about five years, and you can see they're looking at endpoints that include cardiovascular death, heart attack, stroke, or hospitalization for heart failure. What do they find? They find that with medication therapy, as you lower blood pressure, you lower your risk of these events until what happens? Once you get down around 130, then what happens? Your risk of these endpoints actually increases. This is not a unique study. I was just looking at a recent paper a few weeks ago. Same kind of data. You increase medications in certain segments of the population, at least, and actually they increase risk. Now, you say, well, well how, how does this help us? What I'm trying to help us see is the reality, two realities. One, the better we can get our blood pressure naturally, the more desirable. But adding medications to the equation, medications seem to lose their benefits around 140 over 90, at least for some people, and uh, surely in most people by 130 over 80. Okay, that, that's, that's kind of my take on where we're at today. You say, I've got someone with end-stage renal disease. We're trying to keep their systolic blood pressure under 120. Okay, I mean, individualize things. But if you look across the board, this is what the concern is. So if that's one rationale for why we can tell people, yes, why there's confusion, why you're confused, why this one doctor said one thing and someone else is telling you something different. If you're a primary care provider like me, I'm an internal medicine specialist, and someone comes as a patient confused, you can explain to them, well, here's why. The lower you get your blood pressure, naturally the better. But if we add drugs, they can increase problems. And the controversy is, well, where does that balance end? You know, if they walk in with a blood pressure of 170 over 100, there's no question. Okay, you need to get those numbers down. 
If they're 135 over 85, you know, I'm probably not going to increase their medications. And uh, how about if they walk in 110 over 60? I mean, we see this a lot in, in primary care practices. People are getting over-medicated because they walk into the doctor's office and their blood pressure goes up. They're not measuring their pressures at home. But that's a whole other story. So we really encourage people to get those measurements in a home setting or ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. But that's a, a little bit more than we're able to surround today. Let's look at this sixth key message from epidemiology. Why are people not doing well when it comes to high blood pressure control? Because that's what the data indicates. Just let's look at it for a minute. This is U.S. data, and you can see we're doing a whole lot better than we were doing in the 70s, late 70s into the 80s, where only 10% of Americans had their high blood pressure controlled. It's up to 50%, but no one would say that's good, would you? We wouldn't say 50% is good. I mean, some of you may be too far divorced from your medical school years, but I was never happy with a 50% on any test, right? Should we be happy with that as a score in our population, right? Worldwide, it's even worse. I mean, we're actually doing, you know, relatively well, you could say, in the United States, worldwide. If you look at the higher income countries, it's around 30%. So not only is it a worldwide pandemic, not only that's being redundant, of course, but it's a pandemic when it comes to the incidence and the prevalence of hypertension. It's a pandemic when it comes to the lack of control when we've got all these powerful drugs. You say, well, you know, they might not be able to get them in uh, Tanzania. Well, we're not talking just about lower-income countries. We're talking about the high-income countries of the world, still very low rates of blood pressure control. And so, as a clinician, as if... It, just in my own practice, and as you look at the literature, it's pretty obvious what's going on. It's the medication side effects that are keeping people from embracing our typical approach to hypertension, which is medication-based. And you know this stuff. Common symptoms of high blood pressure medications. What do you see? Yes, if they're on a diuretic, they're going to be going to the bathroom more often. Fatigue is common on many blood pressure medications. Dizziness, uncontrollable cough, exercise limitations, sexual dysfunction, and depression. And when you compare that with typical symptoms of untreated high blood pressure, what are you looking at on that side of the equation? That's right, there's nothing. I remember a woman some years ago, she came into my practice. She knew that we had a reputation for getting people off medications for high blood pressure. She had been diagnosed about six or eight months earlier. She was seeing another physician, and every drug that she was put on, she had side effects from. She felt fine. Do you understand? She felt fine with her diagnosis of high blood pressure. But every medication added its complications. And so after about six medications, she was in to explore non-drug approaches to high blood pressure. Some really interesting statistics, if you look at medications that are used to treat high blood pressure... This data from the journal Circulation. If you put someone on a beta blocker to control blood pressure, now these are not considered first-line drugs for blood pressure anymore, if you're not aware. But if you put them on a beta blocker, the only reason you're putting them on atenolol or metoprolol is because they have high blood pressure. The odds are less than one in three that they will still be on that medication for their high blood pressure a year later. So even the best tolerated drugs, the ACE inhibitors, the angiotensin receptor blockers, what do you see? You see that just over about a year's time, a third to a half of people are not going to still be on those medications. So the message is that we are identifying an important risk factor when we screen for high blood pressure. Most of the people that we screen, especially at a screening event, they feel fine. Then we put them on medications that make them feel worse. Is it no wonder that we're not doing too well when it comes to high blood pressure control? So the question is, is there a better way? Is there a better approach? And really, what I'm arguing for is that there really is a no-pressure solution to high blood pressure. Now, of course, we're not talking about no pressure, trying to get them to zero over zero, right? That's not our goal. 
Um, I have no interest in the mortuary business. But no pressure is a mnemonic that we've been using in our educational efforts to try to help people remember 10 areas that can help them with blood pressure control. So here are the 10. You could say, well, this looks like other acronyms that we've seen. Nutrition choices, beverages, physical activity or exercise, rest, environment, stress management, social support, natural agencies that can be used, refraining from pressors, excesses, and exercising faith in God. So this is a construct that we've been using for a number of years now, in, uh, especially in community efforts, but also with individual patients. Now, I've been making a case for a huge amount of interest in this. I'm telling you that the, the public is, is, is anxious to have this. And so to look at some actual data, hard data, where would you find hard data as far as what the public is interested in when it comes to blood pressure? Is there any way that we can put our finger on the pulse of what people want to know if they have high blood pressure? Well, one place you can go is to Amazon. What are people purchasing if they have high blood pressure, right? So I went uh, earlier this week onto Amazon. Here's the uh, Amazon high blood pressure bestsellers. And what you'll notice about them, what you'll notice about them is every single one of them is a lifestyle book. And some of you might even say, well, that's a blood pressure book? I don't know how Amazon, Amazon changed how they rank books in the hypertension category. I've been watching that, being a hypertension book author. But um, why we get fat? Well, definitely there's a connection between obesity and high blood pressure, but how they uh, categorize that under high blood pressure, or the ketogenic diet, or sugar busters, the case against sugar. Yes, we would agree all those things have a role in hypertension, but a lot of them are using the DASH diet, dietary approaches to stop hypertension. That's this, this, and this book. These are all based on the DASH diet. But all of them, you can see, are lifestyle books. It's not the Mayo Clinic guide to choose the best blood pressure medications. So the populace is saying, we want, we want natural strategies for high blood pressure, and we as physicians are trained to do what? We're trained to give medications, right? And they say, no, we're trained to educate on lifestyle. We're Seventh-day Adventists, health professionals. But the problem is, on those short visits... Sometimes we feel our only option is to give a medication. I'm not saying it's wrong. I, I medicate people. If, if someone walks in with a blood pressure of 200 over 120, I don't tell them to change their diet and go out and exercise. You understand? So, I mean, we need to get those numbers down, especially if they're dangerously high. But lifestyle is really what patients are wanting. So, let's look at these uh, 10 steps. But before we do, some of you might be saying, okay, well, this is all interesting um, I'm supposing, and again, I'm putting myself in your position, hopefully you're supposing that there really is evidence base for all of these points, and there are, but you say, does this uh, approach really work? And so I want to just look, uh, look with you at that question briefly. Um, our book came out a couple of years ago. We have four DVDs that complement it, and so we have community groups and churches that are using these resources to put on a four- to eight-week program. And... Um, We've tried to make the barriers for participation very low. Uh, people don't have to go through a training. They don't have to be in any kind of formal database. So we rely on people sharing data with us in order for us to uh, draw any conclusions. But this is a small series. These are uh, three different community programs that have shared their data with us using the curriculum that we're talking about. And what I want you to notice is if you look at the individuals who had blood pressures systolic of 140 over greater. There were 25 in those three programs. Their average blood pressure at the start of using these natural approaches, 157 and a half. And you can see at the end of the four to eight week program, it's a 30 day program, but some churches and community groups stretch it out over eight weeks because there's eight modules in the program. You can see here an average drop in blood pressure of 17 points systolic and about eight points diastolic. So, if you do much in the public health arena, so I, I have a master's in public health. I'm also boarded in preventive medicine. 
And um, Lord willing, in a few weeks, I will be at one of my regular stops during the year, which is the American Public Health Association meetings. Actually, they're meeting not far from here in San Diego this year. So I will be there, and they'll be talking a lot about public health and about translational research. So if you're not familiar with that concept, there's a lot of basic science research. There's a lot of clinical research that happens. But what people in the public health field are saying is we don't really care if, um, if you can lower blood pressure, you know, in this, in this example, with this uh, drug, we want to know if people will actually use that drug and adhere to it and will make a difference in the population. Will providers actually prescribe this medication? So you, you know, come up with this new magic drug X. Some people are experimenting with things like we, we call them poly pills. Maybe you've heard about this. Because what we know about hypertension is the more pills you're on, the less your compliance will be. Okay, so if you're on five drugs for high blood pressure, the likelihood that you're going to take all of those five blood pressure drugs is incrementally decreased relative to if you were just on one or two drugs. So one of the solutions, one of the strategies now is let's put, you know, four, three or four drug classes in a single pill. You know, we've been doing it for years with diuretics. I'll put a diuretic in with the beta blocker or a diuretic in with the ACE inhibitor or whatever. But uh, now they're wanting to put multiple drugs in. And it may make adherence better, but it actually makes it much more difficult to do what we call step-down therapy. Because what we're seeing is if you can get people to get on a better lifestyle, then you can start backing off their medications. You put them on a single pill that has everything in it, well, how do you do that? Okay? Anyway, so translational research says how do we take what we know and put it into effectiveness? And what I'm saying is really translational research, if you will, takes place, maybe not formal research, but it takes place in your clinic, in your office, because what you do, what works for you, what can help your patients, what can help your community get these numbers better. Now, just visiting with a number of you here at these meetings, um, I've heard terms like the blue zone. Some of you were at the ACLM meetings earlier this week, and uh, actually one person was saying they were there and... Um, Dr. T. Colin Campbell, who many of you know from the China diet, China study, he was uh, extolling Ellen White uh, before the audience, and he's not a Seventh-day Adventist. I was last week, actually, up until yesterday, when we flew out of Denver, I was at the National Congress of American Indians, and believe it, believe it or not, even in that venue, um, Seventh-day Adventists actually have a very high profile. The, uh, this is the largest... Um, political body of uh, Native Americans, and it's the oldest. They had their 75th anniversary uh, meeting. It's still going on in Denver, but there's been a very strong Adventist lifestyle presence in that community because of uh, some, some proactive Seventh-day Adventists, and uh, the past president of the National Congress of American Indians is a Seventh-day Adventist, uh, Brian Cladisby. But my point is simply that the world is turning their attention to the Adventist health message. They're interested in what God has given us. And I don't think that in our lifestyle approaches, we have to be ashamed that we're Seventh-day Adventists or feel that we have to hide that. Well, you say, you know, this is a CME event. So why would we look at something that Ellen White said years ago? Well, because we're talking about putting things into practice, and I believe some of the best insights into how to practically implement things actually come from the spirit of prophecy. In medical ministry, Ellen White is quoted saying this. She, of course, didn't write medical ministry. It's a compilation. She said, I'm concerned because so many things engage the minds of our physicians which keep them from doing the work that God would have them do as what? evangelists. Have you thought about that one lately? Actually, I've been thinking about it more lately. And even though I guess a lot of people would say I've done a lot of health evangelism over the years, Lord has been impressing me that I'm, I'm, um, there's still more that I need to do in these lines. And um, I'm actually in the process of, of stepping away from the clinical practice where I've been working. Uh, for those of you that, that know where I've been at, I submitted my resignation a week or two ago. And um, as of December, I'm trying to free up more time to do uh, health evangelism. Now, some of you say, now, well, this is really strange. Are you trying to say we all should leave our practices? No, I don't think 
you all should leave your practices. But I'm saying, corporately, we have a calling. And why I'm telling you this when it comes to high blood pressure, I'm going to show you some preliminary data that suggests that what we have spiritually to offer also can increase the efficacy of what we're doing when it comes to high blood pressure. I'll speak about it more in the next hour. But really, I want to give you a challenge. Um, we don't want you just to leave with a little bit better grasp of epidemiology as it relates to hypertension worldwide. But I'd like to challenge you that before next year's AMEN conference, which is scheduled for Colorado, that you somehow become more active in health evangelism. Okay? You going to let me challenge you that way? So you may feel you're already engaged enough. We'll pray because I think we're I think we've got an opportunity as a church and as believers to do something. The world is more primed, I think, than ever before to hear what we have to say. Um, we've got a bunch of um, things that can help you do that that are free. Okay, CompassHealth.net is my website, and um, if you go there, some of you've been taking pictures of the slides. Many of these slides are available free. Compliments not only of Compass Health, but also of the North American Division. CompassHealth.net slash Health Sabbath, if you can't get to it through some of the um, clicking, if you just actually take a picture of that. I don't know, did you know this? Every year, the North American Division has a Health Sabbath. Uh, maybe, maybe the General Conference maybe sponsors it, but we have a Health Sabbath. It's in February. And every year they provide resources and scripts so that a pastor or health professionals in a church could do a health sermon. And so the featured topic for Health Sabbath in 2018 was on heart and high blood pressure. And uh, one of my co-authors, Trudy Lee, she actually adapted our materials and uh, provided PowerPoints and scripts. So much of what we've been looking at and much, much more is available free of charge compasshealth.net slash healthsabbath. We'll redirect, redirect you there to health ministries. You say, why don't you just tell us just to go to the NAD website? It's because when I tell people to go to the NAD website, they can't find it. Okay? So, uh, um, but if you, you can navigate either way through, uh, through my website or through health ministries. And just trying to give you tools. If you want to give a presentation yourself, the slides are all there. There's no charge for it. You say, well, I don't have time to talk with, pa with patients or lecture patients much. I'm, I'm not in a specialty that really lends itself to that. Um, we've just put up this year free videos, 30-day program. They don't need to buy a book. They don't need to watch any videos in a church setting or community setting. Uh, we call it 30 Days to Natural Diabetes and High Blood Pressure Control. And a little bit more history. One of the things I'm doing in Indian country, that's how we speak about working with Native Americans. In Indian country, I have a grant right now that's working with diabetes among Native Americans. And what we're finding is that the same messaging that relates to high blood pressure relates to diabetes. And so we have these uh, five or six minute modules, 30 of them, on YouTube. You can access them through YouTube or you can go through Facebook. And it's basically me giving some encouragement to people to improve their lifestyle. So those are some free resources to help you in your health evangelism resources, in your health evangelism outreach. Okay? So we've got a lot more stuff in our free materials section on the Compass Health website, but we will hasten on to uh, give you some of the high points of the two topics that lead off. These are the videos that are used. And by the way, since it's a CME uh, event. We're not just talking about one approach. What I'm trying to help you see is that Adventist lifestyle programs, when we look at Adventist lifestyle programs, whether it's the one that I've been working with or whether you look at the Complete Health Improvement Project that Dr. Deal launched and that now is under the umbrella of sanitarium in uh, Australia, whether you look at Dr. Nedley's program, whenever we look at the data from programs that use our Adventist health message, that, that it's compelling. I mean, the, the Lord gave us stuff that is cutting-edge material. And um, some people say, well, Dr. DeRose, yes, you could show us all this data, but there's recidivism. You know, people aren't going to follow this. And they'll go through a lifestyle program at the church, or we'll even do a, something in our, in our medical office, and then some of the patients won't continue to follow it. You know, it's very interesting to me, as a public health professional, that I don't hear people using that argument much when it comes to medications. 
No one talks about recidivism when we put them on a beta blocker for high blood pressure. Okay? So why would we withhold the best treatment just because we think a lot of people won't follow it? Some of them will. Some of them will. Um, now, this is still in the realm of continuing medical education. We're going to speak more about this because people say, well, the spiritual, I mean, you don't talk about that in a CME event because that really doesn't relate. That's, that's how we try to bridge people from the health event to, uh, to Jesus and to Bible study. Well, we have two resources that we use in the hypertension series to help bridge people to spiritual interests. This Spiritual Health Neglected Dimensions is a series that uh, Greg Steinke and I did. And um, we'll talk about that in the next hour if you're interested in it. If you're not interested in it, I'll still talk about it the next hour, okay? You just probably won't be here. But, um, and then we also have this series called Healing Insights from the Gospel of Mark. You say, well, you know, how does this relate to efficacy of programs? Just let me give you, um, this is a, a manuscript that we recently submitted to a, um, a journal. I won't mention the journal name. And we entitled it, Spirituality is a Component of Complementary Approaches to High Blood Pressure Control. Does the Nature of the Spiritual Intervention Make a Difference? Report from a case series. Well, I found out that this particular journal didn't like case series and uh, they rejected it. Really, all I could figure out was for that reason. They were very upset that we didn't do a, uh, a prospective study. But this is an observational study. It wasn't something that we designed. A couple of years ago, my wife and I were invited to go to one of our Adventist lifestyle centers in the uh, Czech Republic. Uh, they are in the process of translating the book into Czech, and they wanted us to do a couple of one-week programs at their facility. This is their facility about an hour outside of Prague, the Czech Republic. So as we were there, we delivered the program twice. But, um, and I may tell more about why we did it this way, but we actually used the spiritual approach in our book for the first week, and the second week, we used a different spiritual approach that was more based on the great controversy. Uh, the first spiritual approach was based on the Beatitudes. And um, this is data from the two programs combined. And it's really similar. I mean, it's only a one-week program. You can see statistically significant changes in systolic and diastolic blood pressure. This is without increasing medications. And you can see about a 10-point drop in systolic, 7.6-point uh, drop in diastolic blood pressure. But what was really interesting is when we looked at this uh, Beatitudes-based model, which is what we use in the book, and we compared it to uh, what you'd say maybe a great controversy model. So it's another spiritual, biblical model. Was there a difference? And you can see it was an amazing difference. The differences were, were statistically significant. About an 18-point drop in blood pressure, average blood pressure, in those who did a model, spiritual model based on the Beatitudes, those who did the other spiritual model, you can see here, much less remarkable changes. And you say, whoa, that's very interesting. We'll, we'll talk more about that in the next hour. But I put it up here because a lot of us have gotten in this mindset that the spiritual dimension really doesn't necessarily have all that much to do with the physical dimension as far as the outcomes. And, and the reason why, and some of you might be saying, no, I don't agree with you. But really, if you think about it, all of the data that we look at in the literature almost always has, the spirit, has no spiritual component to it, Right? So you look at an exercise intervention, it's not combined with exercise and prayer. I mean, there are journals and there are sources that are looking at the spiritual element. But I'm just saying, we can't let the spiritual element slip off the screen and say, this isn't medical, this isn't something that we need to be looking at. I think it does, and I definitely think it needs more research. But our interventions, when we do them in the Adventist church, I think one of the things that gives them efficacy is not just, not just the fact that we're basing them on sound physical and physiologic principles, but we're also bringing the spiritual element in, both in our praying for our patients, praying for our community members, praying for our participants, and also the spiritual elements of the intervention. Well, let me uh, look with you at just some examples um, in our last uh, few minutes. We did start a bit late, and since the next speaker has graciously allowed me to run a little bit late, yeah, for those of you who didn't realize that is me, We'll run just a few minutes late because I want to give you some high points from the first two, and we're going to be covering some of the other elements in the next hour. So nutrition. What in the area of nutrition 
can help us with our blood pressure. We, uh, in our efforts, have focused primarily on three areas, and I want to highlight mainly the first one, which is plant food consumption. Most of you are already directing your patients to adopt more plant food choices. Some really amazing data, I would say, from the Adventist Health Study. This is a um, graphic from the uh, current Adventist Health Study, AHS2. Some 90,000 individuals in this data set that is being uh, projected here. And what I want you to notice, if you haven't seen this particular graphic, I mean, it is worth um, a picture. It's worth, uh, by the way, this is one of the free slides that we're offering you. But um, feel free to, uh, to grab that. I, I think it's actually worth the whole hour that you've spent here, or the 15 minutes, however long you've been here. Because patients have been motivated by this single slide to change their lifestyle. And what it is, is basically showing you as you eat less and less animal products. Now, this is what we call cross-sectional data, so it's at a point in time. But if you look at people who are on a vegan diet, they have about one-fifth the likelihood of having either diabetes or high blood pressure as compared to those who are on the average American diet. So typical dietary practices make a huge difference. It's huge. And you say, well, that's cross-sectional data. There could be all kinds of things that are interfering with that, that are confounding those relationships. But a review. A few years back, you just look at any of the research out there, and as you add more plant products to the diet, and as you subtract animal products from the diet, consistent finding, blood pressure goes down, whether someone is labeled as normotensive or whether they are labeled as hypertensive. And remember, the goal is to try to get our blood pressure as low as possible. Naturally, that's what the data is suggesting. Now, the big, biggest question, I think, in a lot of people's minds is why are plant foods so powerful? What is it that's helping to affect blood pressure lowering? Well, we could look at micronutrients, magnesium, calcium, potassium, and um, what we've done is it looked at these things in some detail. You look at the USDA database. You look at some of these things, especially relative to the number of calories per serving. And you'll see that whether it's magnesium, whether it's potassium, whether it's calcium, you say you're going by that too quickly. All those slides are, by the way, they're in those free resources we have for you. But um, what it's showing you is the champions when it comes to micronutrients per calorie are plant foods. That's right, even with calcium. It's not dairy products. What about phytochemicals? This, to me, is extremely interesting. I would say fascinating. Many of the drugs that we have for high blood pressure work on this uh, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And uh, whether this uh, conjures up uh, nightmares from medical school or nursing school or dental school or whatever discipline you're in, whether you've never seen it before and you're just here because you're a spouse wondering why you stuck your head into a class that's got a teacher that's doing something that every speaking coach says never to do and puts up such a busy slide. Well, the reason the busy slide is there is to appreciate, help you appreciate just how busy this system is, if you didn't remember. But what's so interesting is one of the key components is this uh, angiotensin-converting enzyme that we tend to block with drugs. Are you aware that we now know that there are drugs, if you will, using the phrase lightly in quotes, that are put in, the, in our plant foods by the creator? These ACE inhibitory peptides with blood pressure-lowering properties are found in soybeans and mung beans. And if you like a graphic, maybe better than looking at uh, just a quote, here's a graphic here with some of the, the foods that have been identified as having ACE inhibitory proteins. So when you're eating spinach, you're helping to lower your blood pressure. When you had that peanut butter, it was lowering your blood pressure. The garlic, the rice, the wheat, the chickpeas, these foods all have these compounds that help lower your blood pressure. And you don't have to worry about going into shock from eating too many of them. Really. You can get too much of pharmacologic agents, but not too much of these. Well, weight control, sodium control, very important. From my work with Native Americans, um, it's been underscored many times. The community impact and social determinants of health, a big topic in the public health community. 
Really, what I'd like you to think of yourselves as, don't just think of yourselves as practitioners. Don't just think of yourselves as church members. Think of yourselves as agents of change in your communities. What, what the research is showing us, and we'll look at some more of this in the next hour, is that actually some of the most powerful things that affect chronic disease risk in communities are community values, community practices. And this is why we need churches to be citadels, if you will, of healthy living in their communities. And we'll talk more about that in the next hour. So um, we're going to hasten on. Salt is controversial, but um, most of the data is pretty compelling that for a significant percentage of hypertensives, salt restriction can dramatically help them and dramatically decrease their risk of cardiovascular complications. And, of course, the good news is our tastes change. If you're looking at your watch, we're going to take, uh, you know what we're going to do? We are going to um, take our official break. I know it is uh, right on time. And what I'm going to do, I'll start with beverages in the, um, in the next segment. So we're going to give you a 10-minute break or an opportunity to graciously leave. If you have any individual questions, I'm, I'm happy to talk with you. And uh, let's close with a word of prayer, though, okay? Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the privilege you give us of being your children. And you are, have been so anxious for decades, yes, for, what, over 150 years to shine light on our path, to try to help us, help our communities, help our patients, help our families, avoid the ravages of diseases that you're wanting to mitigate. Please, Father, help us to understand better what you want us to do for our individual patients, for our communities, and for the world. And most of all, help us to know how best to do it in a way that ultimately results in souls in your kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.